91.3 KBCS, Music and Ideas, listener-supported radio from Bellevue College. KBCS's Kevin Henry discusses racialized trauma with Estia Lightfoot, licensed clinical social worker and doctoral candidate and adjunct faculty at Tulane University. So a lot of people are starting to get familiar with these I don't know if they're new terms, but things like racial trauma and and racism-induced trauma and things like that. Could you elaborate on on what that is and just give us a little bit of history uh, as far as where that even comes from? Sure. Um, So racism-based trauma or race-based trauma or race-based traumatic stress, there are a lot of different terms for it. Dr. Robert Carter back in the mid 2000s, about 2005 to 2007, was really kind of developing this idea of race-based trauma. And basically it's mental and emotional injuries that are caused by racist incidents, discrimination. It can happen over a long period of time. There can also be specific incidents that trigger it. Um, It's kind of this compound trauma. It can impact a single person and their wider community, and it can come directly from other people, or it can come from wider systemic issues. Mm. Now, we hear that word systemic a lot, so maybe give us an example of what is systemic? What does that look like or feel like? So with systemic issues, we're talking about things like the criminal justice system, school systems, law in general, just these systems that are in place in the United States specifically, but also around the world that are based on these white supremacist ideas and are meant to keep people oppressed, meant to keep people oppressed. Okay, so when laws and policies, behavior are meant to oppress people, a lot of times I get the impression that people are kind of facilitating or perpetuating a system of things without even knowing it. Are people aware that they're being affected by systemic racism or that they're actually helping to fuel it and keep it going? It's not that common to be aware of it, of being affected by it, or that you're helping to fuel it. So if you feel like someone in your family, or in some cases, you're a social worker, or you're a therapist, is being triggered by something, what are some like signs to look for? Because like we just kind of discussed, Somebody could have PTSD and not even realize it. So if I see you acting a certain way, what are some of the signs that you might look for and think, oh, I think this person might be affected by racial trauma? Triggering is a great way to step into this frame here. The Diagnostic and Statistic Manual, which is the book from which we have mental health diagnoses, has some very specific criteria for PTSD. And there are four different kinds of categories that symptoms fall under. So that's intrusive thoughts, avoidance, negative thoughts and mood, or changes in arousal and reactivity. There's some argument when it comes to racism-based trauma that these criteria don't really cover everything that someone who's experiencing this might go through. And they're 
really this very specific sort of thing, but some things that you might look for is if somebody seems to be having very intense memories mm-hmm. and intrusive thoughts, if they seem to get extremely upset by something that would be triggering them that you might not necessarily have known about. People can relive what happened. They might also avoid reminders of it because it becomes so intense for them. So you might find somebody trying to avoid going to a certain place or seeing a certain thing, watching a certain TV show. There can be like a loss of interest in activities that somebody used to be interested in, depression and anxiety that kind of come with that. And there can be irritable outbursts also um, that the person may not necessarily know why they're being so irritated Mm -hmm. at a certain point until they figure out that they've been triggered by something. There can be a heightened startle response, jumping at these loud noises, something in particular hypervigilance and always being aware of your surroundings and looking for the next bad thing and knowing your exits, knowing what you need for your safety at any given moment. You brought up some things that really resonated with me. I immediately thought of movies and I know that there's a lot of movies that come out, especially recently, that have to do with you know, slavery and racism and all of these biops that you see about like Harriet Tubman and 12 Years a Slave. And I mean, the list goes on and on. And people will sometimes send me emails. Hey, are you going to watch blah, 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 blah tonight? And it's like, I usually tell them I will watch it. But I, it's like I have to prepare myself to be in the right frame of mind, because what I found is watching some movie with Jamie Foxx was in it and it was a real life story especially when it's real life that really can trigger me and I found myself halfway through the movie getting really angry and I'm thinking is this a good thing that I'm feeling this because on one hand I think it's important that the story is being told but on the other hand I'm not in a good mood right now and I'm feeling this anxiety and anger and yeah this is awful and it still exists today and that kind of thing what tips do you give to people of color about how to deal with that. Because I, like, I even think of like, somebody says to me, oh, do you want to go visit so-and-so in a small town in Alabama? I'm like, "Uh, I don't think so. Now, I don't know if that's fair, but my memories of being in the South when I was younger are not all that great. You know, that's where I think I saw the most blatant form of racism in Arkansas and Louisiana and Mississippi and places like that. So what do you suggest to to us, I guess, in in terms of how do we navigate through that? Well, I think you already kind of mentioned one of the keys here is to prepare yourself to be aware um, if something seems like it might trigger you, maybe you don't need to watch it. Um, Maybe you need to take a break from it. Maybe you need to take it in very small chunks. I understand that there's kind of this importance about bearing witness and being that person, but at the same time, you need to be mindful of yourself. And there's absolutely no shame in saying, I can't watch this right now. And we're seeing, especially in the past year and a half, the news has been triggering uh, for so many people. We've had so much police violence. Um, We've been seeing this ongoing pandemic just the responses from the lack of leadership at the time, 
and just this real kind of visceral fear about not knowing what's going to happen next. And I think that that was a really good time for people to turn off the news for a while and take care of themselves. You mentioned the police, which I'm glad you did, because, well, the police have always been in the news, but especially in the last year and a half is what's been going on. And I feel personally, I think there's some great cops and there's some really bad ones. I will do the same thing that if I'm driving and all of a sudden I look in my rearview mirror and I see a cop car, it's not a good feeling. Now, it never really is, but I'm wondering if I get pulled over, a lot of negativity starts kind of going through my head about, oh, am I going to get the racist cop or am I going to get somebody who's rude or is he going to initiate some type of confrontation? Now, personally, the last experience I had with a cop was actually a very pleasant one. And I wound up talking to him for 15 minutes. So I do know that there's good people and there's bad people. But do you have any any thoughts about that? And I don't even know if maybe the problem is more intense where you are, because you're in Louisiana. We say there's a high level of tension here regarding the police. There have even been instances where I have seen somebody who is having an obvious mental health moment. And I think before calling, I don't want to call a cop, I'm going to call a mental health professional because of how quickly it can escalate. That training may not come into play or may not even be present to deal with that sort of thing. And then of course, talking about the racial bias that comes a lot of times with situations like that. And that's another thing about systemic racism. I think we're all biased to some degree. I mean, we're human beings, but at the same time, I think a lot of people can be biased and not even realize it. So it's affecting their behavior. And I think of the police, if I hear a news story and I see like a a cop interacting or stopping a black person and it escalates, I'm thinking would the cop have behaved the same way if he had stopped a white person or stopped a little white lady versus a large black man. And we've had cops thankfully come out and actually admit that there is bias and they've, they've seen it in action and they're whites coming from them and their own police forces where black men, especially larger black men, are harassed and stopped at a higher rate than, say, you know, your kind of average white guy walking down the street. Do you have any opinions, I guess, about how society looks at racism based trauma because sometimes people go oh boy here we go again people just need to get over it let's not talk about slavery anymore and you know that kind of thing yeah so i think there are a couple of questions rolled up into that one so there's society at large and then there's the mental health profession and how they view it so i'll start with the mental health profession and just say that it is not something that is recognized in the dsm that i was talking about earlier And there's debate about that. Um, Some people think that it should be recognized so that there can be specific treatments for it. And some people think that putting things in the DSM pathologizes them. It frames them as an illness, right? Mm -hmm. Which is not necessarily the correct way to approach racism-based trauma. Mm -hmm. And as far as society in general, if somebody says to me, why can't they get over it? It's in the past, leave the past behind. All I can say is it's not the past, it's the present. This is a daily occurrence. And this is the opportunity to start discussing these systemic issues. And what did you see on the news last night regarding race and kind of bring this up and this is a daily thing. And Also considering that 
trauma can be intergenerational. Mm. So this can be something that has been compounded through generations, through hundreds of years. And in this case, it certainly is. So we're talking about the trauma that begins with slavery and comes down through our systems today, the justice system, the school system that continues and is perpetuated. So mm -hmm. for somebody to tell me that it's in the past, that's missing a whole lot of what's really going on. Well, and you, I'm glad you mentioned, uh, you talked about intergenerational and I was thinking about youth, I think about children. And you know, we've all heard about black parents giving their black children the talk and yeah. the anxiety around keeping them safe and making sure they don't wind up on the 11 o'clock news as it, you know, getting shot by a cop or something like that. How do you find that balance with children, making them aware of it, but without traumatizing them? I think you definitely want to kind of be a gatekeeper to the news specifically. You want to limit how much news the child is watching. It differs by age. Mm -hmm. If you are going to watch the news with them, explain it to them in a very straightforward way mm -hmm. that doesn't minimize what they're seeing, but validates it and validates their feelings. And when we're talking about children and trauma in general, we're talking about really the brain of the child yeah. um, and developmental stage that it's at and the part of the brain that really does the reasoning and the language centers are not quite fully developed yet and they really won't be until somebody reaches maybe mid to late 20s mm -hmm. so you definitely want to cater what you're saying to that and understand that you may need to help process a lot of this with them mm -hmm. what would you suggest to white parents who are in the position where, I don't know, maybe their six or seven year old is watching the news and seeing black, a Black Lives Matter protest or even seeing some violence or some, uh, some anger and then wondering, oh, what, mom, dad, what's going on? And I've seen some white parents do one of two things, change the channel and avoid it, or they take the opportunity to talk about what the kid is seeing in a loving kind of caring kind of way, but what would you suggest? I think the second option is definitely the best one. <laughs> there are some resources out there to help white parents instill anti-racist values in their family and their children. Um, I believe Ibram X. Kendi has a book out right now that's um, geared towards children that can help facilitate that. Yeah. But it's best really to explain it and help the child understand not only what's going on, but how they can go forward in their lives um, in an anti-racist manner. Great. Microaggressions. I think it's related to this. And that's another one of those words. What do you mean microaggressions? People just need to stop being so sensitive about things. But I was thinking about microaggressions and trauma. And every time I look at an ex-president on what bill, but I'm thinking, you know, I'm looking at people that were slave owners. I'm, I'm paying my money out and I'm thinking, okay, there's Andrew Jackson or Thomas Jefferson. And then all I ever heard about Thomas Jefferson, how wonderful he was. And, whatever. and then later on in life, I'm hearing about the slaves and, and the four children and, that he had or whatever. 
are, are those kinds of things, uh, Confederate statues, even the 4th of July, I think in some ways, it's like, why am I celebrating the 4th of July exactly? Does that contribute to trauma at all? Oh, absolutely. And if you go back to a lot of the stuff that Dr. Robert Carter has written about it, he focuses on those microaggressions because racism isn't always overt, but it can oftentimes be very subtle. And the trauma comes not from the objective, this is a big event that would traumatize people, but the subjective, how it is perceived. So if somebody perceives something as being negative, regardless of how you perceive it, it can be traumatizing. It can add to that compounded trauma. Mm. Well, is there anything that I haven't touched on that you'd like to add? Or are you optimistic about where we're going? One thing I am encouraged by, even though it's a little unsettling at times, is there seems to be more discussion that's being pushed into the spotlight, you know, whether it be the Tulsa race massacre, Juneteenth, BLM, people are being pushed into having to talk, have conversations, I think. Yeah, um, I am cautiously optimistic. Um, Just as an example, something that I have seen in my own life is when I first went to social work school about 10 years ago, we weren't having these critical race theory discussions these discussions about intersectionality, pushing these critical ideas. And now when I'm teaching these classes, this is at the core of the curriculum. And we're really focusing on anti-oppressive practice and social work, which I think is really important for this profession and for many other professions that have been built on oppressive practices, or in the case of social work, assimilationist racist practices. That was Astia Lightfoot, clinical social worker and adjunct faculty at Tulane University, speaking with KBCS's Kevin Henry. For more KBCS stories and to support our work with a donation, you can visit kbcs.fm.